Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. Hi and welcome to Shifters Podcast. Today I'm really excited to announce uh, Mr. Elad Jill uh, as this week's guest. Uh, he's well-known technology executive and angel investor and uh, Jill has worked with high growth tech companies like Airbnb, Twitter, Google, Instacart, Coinbase, Stripe and Square as they've grown from small companies into global brands. So welcome Elad. Ah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I was so excited when you said you wanted to join and uh, and thanks so much to Dag Olav Norem, CEO at Folio for the introduction. So uh, let's get uh, to it, Ilad. Uh, congratulations with your book, uh, The High Growth Handbook. Uh, I've read uh, quite a number of books and mostly they cover some sort of product development or org development or business side of a company, but uh, I've never come across a book that focuses on the company building for high growth businesses. So it was really a great and very practical book. Uh, I guess you saw this hole and decided to do something about it. Yeah, that's right. I uh there there's a lot of things that have been written about the early stages of startups, you know, Peter Thiel 0 to 1 or the lean startup, you know, how do you how do you figure out what to actually build? But there wasn't very much written about once something's working and you have product market fit, how do you really focus on scaling it? How does your role as a CEO change? How do you think about board members? buying companies, uh, recruiting executives, doing reorgs, etc. So the, the focus of the book is really asking, uh, how do you build out and professionalize all the various aspects of a company when things are actually working? So do you think uh, founders focus less on building a business than building the product? Yeah, I think a lot of uh, first-time founders, if something actually starts working, uh, they fall into a little bit of a frenetic mode where everything's breaking and they never think proactively about their company and the roadmap for their company. So just like you have a product roadmap and you would do exercises if your product is really working to scale the back end or to figure out how to build out your product for scale, uh, you need to do the same thing for your organization or your company and view your company as a product and start to ask, what's my roadmap? What sort of executives do I need a year from now? So when should I start hiring them? What sort of functions will I need to put into place? And so really you have to shift your mindset from uh, not just thinking about the product that you're selling to customers uh, as a product and a roadmap, but also your company as a product and a roadmap that you're building at the same time. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, investing. You're an active angel investor. Uh, and a lot of investors would put uh, the team as a primary factor for investing. But you focus more on uh, what market, right? Yeah, that's right. I think the single most determinant, single most important determinant of a company's success is the market that it's in. And I've seen amazing teams get destroyed by bad markets. And then I've seen very mediocre teams do extremely well in a good market. And so ultimately, as an investor, my biggest question is, what is the market that they're in? What's the product they're building for it? And then the next question would be, okay, is the team good? And are they credible? And can they pull, it off, pull this off? 
But uh, what is a market? Because uh, what market is Amazon in, for example, or Google? So how how do you actually define a market? Uh, Vinod Kosa has this great um, quote, which is your market entry strategy is different from your market disruption strategy. So if you look at Amazon, their market entry strategy was to sell books online. And they said once the reason they chose books was they said, well, it's something that uh, certain people buy a lot of. Uh, most physical stores can't carry that much inventory. So there's a real so you'd have many more SKUs than um, would be possible otherwise. It's usually not something that you need to rush. So at the time, shipping infrastructure wasn't as good. So you didn't need it immediately. Often you buy a book and you can read it a couple days later. And so that was their market entry strategy. And then eventually they decided, you know what, uh, we can start adding all these other categories and cross-sell them to our customer base. And so th- the way that they thought about disrupting the market shifted into broadening categories, then launching things like AWS and Kindle and the like. And so I think similarly there, the initial market was books, but with an idea that the broader market that they're in was online car- commerce, which was a brand new category back then. So, um, so I do think you can define it early as a company has just started. But uh, did you do you think that Google <laughs> uh, thought about uh, uh, making uh, like bu- buying YouTube and uh, and making a browser? Do you think they were thinking so far ahead? Um, yes and no. Uh, you know, Google's mission statement was to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. So they had a very broad mission, despite just being a search engine. And they always, even very early on, were talking about things like, what if you scanned all the books in the world in? And so I think they were very ambitious early on. I don't think that they knew exactly the path that they would take. Um, There used to be a board. I I worked at Google between 2004 and 2007. And there used to be a whiteboard in the entranceway to the the headquarters there that had uh, jokes about all the projects that they, they were supposedly working on and that they weren't at the time. And so the browser was on there and satellites were on there and all these things. And it was meant as a joke. And now they've ended up building many of those products. So, um, you know, the best companies may not know exactly what they're doing, but Google actually always had a very broad mission and a very broad vision in terms of what the purpose of the company was. Because uh, you and um, and Mark and Dreesen talk about um, uh, companies being uh, product centric versus being distribution centric. So, uh, and I find that very interesting uh, concept. Uh, and isn't is it about to make your your company or product uh, like into a distribution uh, engine so you can actually launch different types of business models and products through that distribution? Yeah, exactly. I think the evolution that a lot of companies make is they build a product that is 10x better than anything else on the market, and that allows them to create distribution for that product. And so their sales team will actually be effective selling against incumbents, or maybe it's a new product category, so it gets adopted by users. And then once they have that distribution channel or user base, the playbook traditionally has been go and either buy or build other products and then cross-sell them to that same user base. Um, I think the very best companies actually think about distribution much more, uh, much earlier than many people talk about. So for example, when Google um, was actually quite young, it was spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year to distribute search, either through its deal with Firefox, where it owned the homepage of Firefox, or through distribution of uh, Toolbar, which was... Uh, basically a toolbar that would embed into a browser and would allow you to do searches inside of Internet Explorer or uh, Firefox or other browsers at the time. And so they were very aggressive about it. And then as they bought YouTube and other things or built other properties, they started integrating them in to search results as sort of the one box at the top where 
you do a search for something and suddenly you see video results integrated in. So they've been very smart about using distribution to cross all things. Facebook has done the same thing as they bought Instagram and WhatsApp in terms of cross-sharing data, allowing onboarding and growth to happen. And they were also very aggressive about, for example, uh, literally buying ads against the names of people uh, in Europe as they were entering different countries uh, to try and create network density on Facebook as a platform. And so I actually think some of the biggest companies in the world or the most successful ones got to their scale because they were very smart about distribution. And I think many founders make the mistake of not thinking about it and only thinking about their product. Uh, and, you know, that means that they're going to under-optimize where they end up as a company. Yeah, very interesting. So um, um, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about uh, product market fit. And uh, I'm, I'm curious about uh, uh, how you define product market fit. And when do you know whether you or the startup you have invested in or are going to invest in actually have achieved product market fit or not? I think ultimately, there's a few different ways to think about product market fit. And uh, Mark Andreessen actually has a great series of blog posts about this that I think is worth uh, looking up. You can actually download it from the Andreessen Horowitz website at this point. Um, the gist of it is uh, often when a product is really wanted by um, a certain set of users, they will deal with all sorts of things in order to uh, user buy that product. So examples would be the product is sort of half broken and kind of janky and doesn't quite work, but tons of people are still paying for it because it just fills such an immediate need. Early Twitter was like that, where it kept going down as a platform. It kept breaking for hours or in some cases days, and people still kept using it and didn't switch to anything else. That's a clear sign of product market fit is if you have something broken, but people are still using it. Another sign of product market fit, or at least a defensible product market fit is the ability to raise prices. So if you can charge more people um, more money without them uh, churning out, that's usually a strong sign of product market fit. Uh, often, you know, when a company is truly undergoing product market fit, they can't sell, they can't build the product fast enough to sell it, or they can't distribute it fast enough. People are constantly asking them for it, um, and so you know, I think there's a, a variety of different signs for it. For a very early company, you know, you're five people and you've launched a product. Often, the companies that I've seen succeed best. Uh, we'll have the following signs of product market fit. Number one, if they're an enterprise company, uh, they will be growing at a pretty good rate, even if it's a, off of a small user base. So often people will discount high growth on small numbers. If you go from a thousand people or a thousand users to 1200 users to 1400 users, people may say, well, those are tiny numbers. Do they really matter? But if you're growing 20% month over month very consistently, that's usually a very good sign. Uh, similarly, if you're a SaaS company um, and you have large companies randomly adopting you, uh, that's a that's a great sign. And paying for you, that's a great sign of product market fit. So, for example, I invested in a company called PagerDuty when it was just the founders, and it was a ops uh, infrastructure product. Right? It's basically PagerDuty for engineers. So if something breaks, they get paged. And um, at the time, I think I, I may be misremembering it, but Apple and Amazon and other big companies were actually using them as a paying customer. They had like 20 customers and these big, these big companies that actually found them and started paying them. Um, and so that was a clear, and they similarly were growing 20% month over month. So that was a clear company that was just working where people wanted the, wanted the product very early on. Is it, so is that something an angel investor should look for? Um, have a clear definition of what he consider he or she considers product market fit, and uh, have that as a, as, a, as an as a, p a perimeter for for investing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think too many angel investors discount that early growth or discount that early traction. And so half the time you hear people say, well, that's a niche market and it's too small and who's going to buy it. But if the thing is just working, it's just working. And um, even small numbers growing at a good rate, if if they have no churn or negative churn or little churn, you know, there, there are just these signs that suggest that it's really working. So uh, since you're uh, so concerned with markets, what kind of markets do you find interesting at the moment? Uh, there's a few broad markets that I find very interesting right now. Um, there's this whole segment that I call developer light products uh, that I think are super interesting right now. So an example of that, uh, or the, the driver for that would be that there's all these different people going to coding boot camps or who are sort of uh, taking a computer science class in college. And the proportion of those people has grown pretty dramatically over the last couple of years. And they're not necessarily um, full-on developers, but they're much more tech-savvy uh, than the average sort of white-collar worker. And they want to be able to configure or build sort of modules off of software. And so there's companies like Airtable or Notion or Retool that are basically providing products for what I'd call sort of the developer light world. Um, so I think that's a really interesting market segment right now. I think ongoing, there's tons to do in SaaS and different uh, vertical SaaS applications. And then I think uh, crypto is obviously super interesting, although there's all sorts of bad stuff in there too. And then lastly, I think the semiconductor layer for machine learning or things that will compete with NVIDIA GPUs is a very interesting market right now. And if you look at uh, historical technology trends, every time there's a technology shift, there's a tens of billions of dollar market cap uh, semiconductor company built. So you know, for the networking era, it was Broadcom. For mobile, it was Qualcomm and ARM. Uh, you know, for the PC revolution, it was Intel and AMD. And I think similarly for machine learning, there's going to be people who will be building these custom ASICs that will build very large companies. So do you think there will be a crypto revolution or or blockchain revolution, like uh, or paradigm shift, uh, like with the, the PC or, or, uh, or a server to cloud? I think the primary places where it will impact the world is more in financial services. So I'm not a big believer in, at least in the short run, in sort of internet three, where suddenly everything is running on a decentralized cloud. I think there's lots of cost to decentralization. Um, and so in general, unless you're benefiting from other aspects of the blockchain, such as the fact that it's trustless, it's resistant to censorship or government seizure, like that's where I think it gets interesting. And that's primarily in my sort of persistent digital goods on the NFT side. So I think crypto is very interesting for store of value, for privacy uh, tokens or pri private money or transactions, for smart contracts and fundraising. But I actually think it's less interesting uh, for the sort of pure, just distributed compute side. Um uh, although you're market focused, uh, you you probably look at the team as well, right? <laughs> it's not like you you don't look at team. So so what are the characteristics of a, of a good team that you could invest in? I think there's a few different characteristics. Um, Chris Dixon has this good framework of founder market fit. So is it is the founder somebody who actually is a good fit for the type of product that they're building? And so often, you know, during the social networking era, you had these very strong systems engineers with no real good consumer sensibility who didn't use social products, building social products, and those all failed. So, you know, the type of person who may be good at building a social product may be very different from somebody who can build a cloud service, which may be different from somebody who's building a SaaS product. Uh, so one is, are they a good fit for the market or can they become a good fit? They don't a priori have to be one. Um, second, do they learn quickly? 
So are they constantly gathering information from other founders or from customers or others and sort of iterating? Uh, and then third is determination. You know, will they keep going if things are rough because things will always get rough? And then lastly, is it somebody who can either evolve into a leadership role or who can, um, you know, hire up a team around them who can who can help really drive a company as it scales? Honestly, that's more secondary because the skills needed to find product market fit are very different from the skills needed to scale after you have product market fit. And if somebody has both, then they're just magical. Okay. And uh, I'm uh, lastly about investing. I'm going to ask you a Peter Thiel question. Uh, so what do you believe to be the truth about angel investing, but where most investors will actually disagree with you? I think there's three or four um, truths that uh, I don't think are quite correct. Uh, the first one is a lot of people talk about how you need co-founders, you know, uh, and single co-founders don't do well, or single founders don't do well. And that's that's actually completely false if you look at any data. You know, most of the biggest companies in the world in technology either had a single co-founder or a dominant co-founder. Uh, so it was very uneven founding partnerships for the ones that that had co-founders. And there's a few counterexamples to that, like Google or Stripe. But the but if you look at it, Oracle, Microsoft, LinkedIn, um, Facebook. You know, in all cases, you had either a single founder or a dominant one. Jeff Bezos at Amazon would be another example. So one is sort of the the structure of the founding team. I think people get completely wrong and actually think equal co-founders may actually be a negative for true outside success versus a positive. Um, I think a second myth is that uh, every technology market is really winner take all or winner take most. And I think there's a number of markets now where we've seen that you can have multiple players that get really big. Payments would be a great example of that. To a secondary extent, ride sharing still, you know, lift if it ends up being a $10 billion plus company, that's a massive outcome. So I think there, uh, in the social networking era, there's this view that everything is winner take all. And that's driven by the fact that those are network effect driven businesses. I think there's other types of uh, market structures and other types of outcomes uh, that can occur. So I think that would be sort of a second, a second myth. Interesting. Um, uh, and, uh, um, okay, let's move on. Um, uh, you, you've been involved in Airbnb, Twitter, Google, Instacart, uh, the whole shebang <laughs> almost. And, uh, I, I think it's an amazing lineup. So, uh, I wanted to ask you the same question you asked Mark. Um, so after you have achieved product market fit, what do you think are the most important determinants of a company's success? I think it's three things. Uh, number one is who's actually put in place on the team. And how strong are they? Because I think the difference between a $10 billion company and a $100 billion company is uh, often the team. Because you can get to $1 to $10 billion if you have amazing product market fit. Often to go beyond that, you need people who can really scale up, who can launch new products, etc. Uh, so one is team and who you put in place on is effectively your executive team. Uh, because then that cascades down to every org. Um, second, I think, is a degree to which they're aggressive and they want to sort of continue to win and how much do they view the company as truly a platform for them to change the world? And I found that the founders who are most aggressive about um, sort of winning and uh, creating change are the ones who really will take things to the next level and keep going and keep iterating and thinking of new things. And then lastly, I think, uh, and, and they're also the ones who eventually figure out, you know, distribution is as important as product and all these other things that we, that we sort of have talked about as well as that are in the book. Um, 
And then uh, lastly, I think it's all about... Um, uh, sorry, I lost the thought. So yeah, it's all, it's all right. All right, let's let's talk a little bit about the CEO role of a high growth business. So, uh, what insight have you learned about the CEO CEO role when looking at successful companies? How does a CEO best spend his time? Yeah, I think um, the CEO role changes a lot. Um, so, for an early stage company, you know, there's really three things that you need to do in in order to um, sort of find product market fit and survive and take it to the next level. And they're very hard things, but the th there's only three of them. And those are find product market fit, which is hard. Um, have enough money to get there. So don't run out of money and don't fight with your co-founder, right? And if you do those three things, you you tend to be able to make it. Although again, those are very hard things. <laughs> For a late stage uh, CEO, um, there's way more complexity to deal with you have to um, hire for functions you've never run before. You need to buy other companies. You need to raise giant rounds or do tender offerings. Uh, you need to launch multiple products. You need to manage an organization. You need to communicate across multiple levels. Um, when all is said and done, though, it kind of consolidates down to four key things uh, that sort of encompass all these things. Number one is setting the overall direction of the company, its strategy, And then communicating that really effectively and clearly to your employees, to your customers, to all your different stakeholders. So number one is setting direction and strategy. Number two is um, really hiring, uh, onboarding effectively, training, and then deploying employees against that strategy. Uh, third would be to ensure that you have money or that you have the capital needed to succeed. And that you could be a profitable business, but having a war chest may still be helpful for acquisitions or other purposes. And then lastly, I think you're kind of in this role early on, and eventually you delegate pieces of that to your executive team of really being the chief psychologist of the company. I think founders are really um, often surprised by how much time they have to spend on people issues, organizational issues, uh, mentoring, et cetera. And so I think those are really the four roles. And most people talk about the first three, but I think the last one ends up being uh, pretty important over time. Yeah. Uh, can you spot those type of qualities uh, in uh, a founder early on, or is that impossible? Um, you can spot it in some people, but not all. So I think there's some people where it's very clear from day one that they have these characteristics that we just spoke about or that they can develop them really effectively. Um, you know, there's some founders who are just really good at selling and um, communicating. And that translates into some of these other aspects, for example. Um, but I think there's also people who just grow into it. You know, like some founders you'll meet when they're 22 and they're straight out of school and they're starting a company and they've never had a job before and they don't have a lot of context in terms of what a work environment is and how it should function. And so sometimes you meet people who are just very early. And when I was 22, and I, I couldn't have done all this, you know? And so I think it's something that you just learn with experience but also learn from having people around you who've done it before and learning from them. And so I think it was Bill Gates who would often hire as a COO the person that he most wanted to learn from uh, because effectively that was his way to learn from others. Yeah. So uh, what do you think is the most uh, common mistake uh, among uh, CEOs of uh, high-growth startups? I think it's a few mistakes. Uh, I think on the... Hiring side, there's all sorts of mistakes that they make, either in terms of the types of people that they bring on because they have a certain pedigree um, or alternative, but maybe a bad culture fit or alternatively, uh, 
in terms of leaving in place people who are good but not great for a role simply because they've never seen great before. So, you know, you have the employee number two who ends up running marketing for you, but who's actually t- not that good at marketing, but you, you leave them in the role because you just don't know any better. Um, and so I think there's, there's a mistake around people. Uh, there's mistakes around product. Like some CEOs never really get very aggressive about um, eventually adding additional product lines, or they're not very strategic about how to reinforce the core product that they have or create defensibility around that, or how to use their distribution moat. Uh, or starting to do M&A. So it's more of this sort of, you know, aggressive thinking about what truly is a movable needer, needle mover that will take your company to the next level, I think is a second uh, common mistake. And then a third is, I think a lot of CEOs um, aren't people who, there are people who are uh, very comfortable with chaos, with uncertainty. Um, they keep a lot of information in their own head. And one of the transitions they have to make is to realize that most employees that they hire as they're scaling are going to be much more risk averse, much less able to deal with uncertainty, and much more interested in receiving direction, career path, a common focus, um, et cetera. And so I think founders often have a different personality type than the people they hire, but they um, project their own views of the world in terms of how a company should run onto their employees when their employees are actually very unhappy with that view of the world. And so there's this mental shift that needs to happen. Okay. And uh, yeah, and that, uh, it, uh, that sounds uh, hard. And uh, do you think that the CEOs might, should be a, a tiny bit cynical in terms of how to run their business? Uh, what do you mean by that? No, I mean, like, should they be, uh, are they maybe too soft and less, uh, not uh, use the word uh, aggressive? Uh, uh, and uh, should they or aren't they ag- aggressive enough? Uh, sometimes it depends on what aggressive means. Um, aggressive could mean being much more focused on distribution and winning deals or partnerships. Um, and so sometimes CEOs don't do that well. Um, I mean, sometimes CEOs, uh, founders can be too aggressive. You know, they expect uh, certain things out of their employees that just doesn't make sense, you know? So I think, I think it can run the whole gamut in terms of the personality of the founder CEO sort of driving where on the spectrum they fall. But in general, I think, um, there's a tool, a toolkit that's available to companies. And if you're a first time CEO, you may just not realize that those tools exist. Um, buying other companies or M&A is a great example of that, where if you have a $5 billion market cap, you should probably be buying lots of other companies. Um, and then distributing them and sort of building off of that distribution or alternatively buying companies to sort of reinforce your base or create defensibility or bring in unique talent or whatever it may be. And I think a lot of companies at that scale today are not doing very much M&A. And I think it's just because they're, una- they're, they're not very familiar with the toolkit. There's internal resistance to buying things usually when you're starting a company, when you're growing a company. And so they kind of miss the benefits of a very useful tool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about hiring and recruiting. So, hiring is uh, is hard, uh, obviously, and uh, but uh, also very crucial. So, and when growing fast, how to know what to hire? <laughs> I know it's a broad question, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. but um, uh, uh, for example, when you need to hire a person in a field where you don't have any expertise, let's say HR or marketing, uh, what do you do? How do you make sure you hire the right person? Yeah, I think. Um... For example, say that you were hiring a, a general counsel or a CFO for the first time, 
a good rule of thumb would be to go and talk to people uh, that your people on your network suggest are excellent at the job. And the idea isn't to try and recruit these people necessarily, but more to ask them, what do they view as great in the role? What should a CFO actually do? Where should they spend their time, particularly for your scale of company and your specific moment of company? Um, and what would they be asking if they were interviewing people? And what would they be looking for in terms of backgrounds and seniority and all the rest? So I think the first step is to go and talk to people who are actually experts at the function and get their view. Um, the second thing is write up a job rec or job description for that role and then circulate it to everybody who's going to be interviewing that person. Because what I found is, for example, at a company that I started Color Genomics, we were hiring somebody to uh, lead BD for us, business development. And we had, at the time, uh, very few people on the business side. And so we had folks from engineering or from the medical staff or other areas interviewing um, candidates. And they didn't actually know what a business development person really did. And also, what were we looking for? How senior? What should they be good at, bad at? And so writing up that job description not only helps you find candidates, but you should also effectively train your team who's interviewing that role for what they should be looking for and what they should be covering. So I think that's an important best practice. And then I think you can either do some sort of work-based interview. Um, if, it's, if it's a function where it makes sense to do that, you know, designer can come and contract with you for a week working on design, for example. Um, and then obviously reference checks are incredibly crucial and, you know, really digging into um, past experiences of people who've worked with the person is, is very important. Yeah, what, what I found particularly interesting in your book is that uh, you, you talk about hiring for the next uh, six to 12 months and um, and uh, not necessarily uh, uh, hire uh, a person you think uh, is great uh, at, a, at a specific uh, type of job, but uh, the, the person should be or should have experience uh, dealing with the phase that you are looking at uh, the next six to 12 months, right? Uh, did I understand that correctly? Yeah, I think it's basically you want to hire for the next, uh, say, 12 months or 12 to 18 months even. Uh, and I think a common mistake that people make is uh, say that they're a team and they have, uh, you know, 10 engineers and they're going to be growing to 30 engineers over the next 18 months you shouldn't go and hire the VP engineering that you'll need five years from now when you assume you may have 500 engineers. Uh, because a person who's managed a 500-person team or a 1,000-person team is not going to have much to do with a 10-person team. They just literally will have forgotten how to do that effectively or they'll be bored with the role. You know, they're used to having managers of managers of managers, you know, managing teams of 10 people. Um, and so they're just going to be very ineffective at the, at the job. Um, similarly, if you hire somebody who's only ever managed two people to manage a 10 person team, that's going to grow to 30 people, they may also not have the skill set or experience that you need. And so what you want to do is hire somebody who's maybe managed 20, 30, 40, 50 people, um, who's willing to manage just a 10 person team, but who can scale and grow to the, the next phase that you need a, because you don't know where you're actually going to end up after 18 months. I think it's very hard to predict. But B, if that person continues to grow with the organization, that's a huge positive and, you know, you um, can continue to promote them. But alternatively, if suddenly you have 200 people faster than you thought, you can always hire somebody above them and then they can run one big unit and you hire two or three other people or promote other people to, to run other units under that new vice president or whatever the title may be. So I do think you um, don't want to overhire uh, or under hire relative to just where you are as a company and where you're heading over a 12 to 18 month period, because longer than that, you can't really predict, but also you may be either unable to attract talent 
that can scale beyond that. Or alternatively, you may not want to because they're going to be ineffective. Yeah, interesting. And um, and uh, lastly, I want to talk about uh, big organizations because all startups uh, want to become a large company with, with lots of impact. That's their their goal. Their their goal is not to be <laughs> to to stay a startup. And um, is there an organizational structure and specific set of uh, best practices to to run a large uh, organization as smooth as possible with less politics, uh, greater innovative capacity and great people that stays on? Or is it inevitable to to become old, slow, unattractive and less inventive? Uh, It's interesting because if you ask people what are the most innovative companies in the world, uh, I think often they'd point to things like Google or Amazon or Apple uh, or you know maybe SpaceX or something is the most innovative companies in the world and the ones that are continuing to produce some of the most interesting products and those are all large companies um, so you know Google did Waymo the self and sort of launched self-driving or autonomous vehicles as a whole area um, they ended up building Chrome and Android and all these really great um, products over time uh, once they were quite large actually uh, so I do think you can continue to innovate at scale I think the organization will shift over time. And there's a lot of religious debate between do you want a matrix organization versus business units versus other structures. And honestly, I think it really just comes down to what's the structure that you have at a given time, but also more equally importantly, what are the processes that you put in place to support each type of structure? The way that you actually run a matrix organization and the processes you need in terms of weekly meetings or other tools to sync up those organizations is very different from if you have business units. And so I think part of it is to think of it again as how are you actually designing your organization and what you're doing and how do you support whatever structure you have uh, based on processes. The very pragmatic view of it is, um, you know, at any given time, you're going to have different talent in-house. And as you're building out your organization, you're going to have to be very flexible and pragmatic about who reports into who and who's building out what organization so an example of that would be at Twitter, the general counsel there was uh, this uh, person, Alex McGivory, and at different times he owned M&A, trust and safety. It's possible, I think, that even support rolled up into him for a while. And that's because besides being a great general counsel or legal mind, he was just a good manager and there was bandwidth needed on the team and there's nobody else to run those functions. And so at different times they reported to him and then eventually, you know, M&A moved out under him to somebody else and other areas sort of moved around, but he owned them temporarily because bandwidth was needed and he could do it. Um, so sometimes you also just have to be very pragmatic in terms of who you have in place, what's the bandwidth that they have. And then lastly, I think um, part of org structure beyond pragmatism is just where do you want tie breaking to happen? Of certain things, then both functions should roll up to you. If you want decisions to be made lower down in the organization, then you should have those things report into the same person. So an example would be if you don't want to have to make decisions between product and design, maybe you have a single vice president of product and design with, into which each of those areas rolls up so that if there's debate between those two functions, that that executive can make the decision without having to go to you for everything. Right. So it's a little bit about where do you want decision making to happen in the organization. Yeah, interesting. And um, uh, lastly, what uh, what is the what's the, what is the typical type typical advice you give founders or founders to be? Is is there something that you uh, some type of advice you 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 always give? I think it's two things that are completely opposing advice. <laughs> um, 
on the, uh, I'll give you three pieces of advice, two that are posing and one that's generically true. Um, I think the generically uh, true thing is that really the most important thing for your company is finding product market fit. And if you don't have product market fit, almost anything else that you do doesn't matter. And so a lot of people spend time debating everything from the refrigerator they're buying for the startup to, you know, um, some complexity around distribution and growth hacking or whatever it is. But you know what, if you just don't have a good product or it's just not working, none of that other stuff matters. The speaking tours don't matter and the press doesn't matter and all the things you could do don't matter. And so really that's the only real determinant of an early stage company. Um, just, just, the, just to follow up on that. Uh, yeah. So how long should you, should you search for a product market fit? Is there, is there a time where you should just stop? I think honestly, it's really hard to know because sometimes there's the rare examples where a company will take five or six years and suddenly it start working. Um, I think most things that work tend to work pretty early. So within 12, 24, maybe 36 months, it's either working or it's not. Um, you know, there's customers who are paying for it, it's growing at a good rate, et cetera. Uh, you know, usually you can tell reasonably early, at least if there's some signal. Yeah. Um, now, don't get me wrong, after a year, most things are uncertain and you have to keep pushing or it feels too small and you just don't know if it's going to work. But, you know, within two, three years, it's, it should be working or not. Uh, one thing that's happened recently is that there's so much funding available, at least in Silicon Valley, that a lot of people can raise sequential bridge rounds. And so they keep raising money and the company never dies. And so I think there's all this talent that's tied up right now in Silicon Valley that should be sort of set free. Um, but because people can keep raising money, they never just sell and say, you know what, we're going to take a loss and sell and move on. And then we'll free up all this talent that's in the company. Um, the contradictory advice that I would give is if you want to start a company, you should go and start it. It's not about learning new things. It's not about, um, you know, uh, gathering experiences. Like, I think it's okay to just go and start it uh, and, you know, go for it. The other side of it is startups are really, really hard and they're brutal and they're stressful. And I've seen people's marriages collapse. I've seen um, all sorts of things happen to people because of the stress of a company. And so you have to make sure that it's really for you to do it um, because there's lots of other ways to be successful or to have impact. And it really isn't for everyone. No. So th those would be sort of the two opposing uh, <laughs> pieces of advice on it. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. And uh, just uh, last question, have you ever been to Norway? <laughs> yeah, I have. Um, I spent a bit of time in Oslo and I actually had the second best sushi in my life outside of Japan and Norway. So really, I think it's an awesome place. Yeah. I, I like sushi. Is that it? Uh, this was like 10 years ago. So I don't, I don't remember. I just remember it was exceptionally good and the fish was amazingly fresh and, you know, it was awesome. So what would it take for uh, you to get back uh, uh, some sushi? Is that it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sushi is always uh, the thing that'll drive me somewhere. So oh. that's pretty easy. Perfect. I'll, I'll, I'll try to follow you up on that uh, later. And um, Elad, uh, it, it has been very, very interesting to talk to you. And uh, thank you so much for your insight. And uh, good luck with your new book. Uh, and I, I cannot recommend enough. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.